0: on radical obedience. Love is the hallmark of the Christian life. We are born by love, we are born into love, and we live by love. This loving obedience, willing heart, is not only the guiding principle of life, it's the most powerful, exciting, energizing, motivational imaginal, imaginable, to live a life of radical discipleship. John chapter 8, verses 28 to 36 say, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The 1980s, um, when Lewis was the senior pastor. We had very few members of staff and the responsibility of a breakthrough ministry and a growth ministry was on the shoulders of few of us. We would start work at 7 a.m. beating the traffic on the way in, arriving for 6 to have devotions and time together and work many nights of the week until 10 p.m., and then make the long journey home. Nobody said, ah, all right. No, it's okay. It's okay. So you, you, you will know that it's very easy to get maximized on meeting. I mean, you know, have an over, over, over abundance of meetings. As if Jesus said, I've come to give you meetings, and meetings in abundance. One Friday night, I received a telephone call from Wynne Lewis, Wynne Lewis was wonderful to work for, he had a great sense of fun, he was an art disciplinarian, Um, and, you know, you had to to make sure you lined up. Of course, my leadership has been very much more gracious and loving, and yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, Friday evening, early Friday evening, telephone call from Wynne, Colin! There's a meeting at Kensington Temple tonight. He was Welsh, just in case you didn't get the accent. I said, yes. He said, are you going? I said, no, I hadn't planned to go. Oh, oh, oh. And he didn't say, you must go. Didn't even ask me to go. And it was not exactly a KT Central service meeting. It was one of the network churches that were using KT to hold one of their meetings. And there was somebody coming from overseas. I knew that although Wynne had not asked me or told me to go, that he would, would have liked me to have gone. So I put down the phone and wrestled with this, in mm, 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 the way that we do, all right, all right. So I decided to go because I knew that my boss wanted me to do it. I didn't come in a very gracious spirit, I must admit. sat at the back of the church. Um, I wasn't supposed to be doing anything, just, just to be there in support. But Anyway, as the meeting started to get going, I got really interested and I moved closer and closer and it was fantastic and towards the end of the meeting, I was invited to take part in the ministry team and we were praying for people and good things were happening and it was really wonderful. I was so glad that I went and went back home happy. And also having learned maybe a little lesson, The blessing of obedience. God always blesses obedience. This is the third message in my series on Radical Followers of Jesus. I began with talking about the radical love of God. That's our foundation, being rooted and grounded in love. And then I went on to talk about building on that foundation a radical relationship in which Jesus is the centre of everything, forsaking all to pursue him. Now I want to take it further and talk about something that's been implicit all the way along, and that is radical obedience. Don't be frightened of the word radical. I do not mean it in the modern connotation which is, you know, religious extremism. I mean it in the sense of thoroughgoing. Um, a, a, A radical decision is a decision that is going to affect every part of your life. A radical person is somebody whose mindset and whose passion in life affects everything. And this is what it means when we talk about radical obedience. It's not just obeying in part of the things that you like or the things that suit you. It is saying, I'm going to be consistent. It, it might mean, always is actually, gradual growth and, and progressive growth in our understanding, but we have this commitment to be consistent. In our passage, there is a question that comes up, Really, what, what, what is the difference between a believer in Jesus and a disciple? And some would argue there is no difference. I would say there should be no difference. But our passage shows that there is a difference. Following Christ and obeying Christ is something that you add to your faith. Your faith, simple faith, in pure grace, is what qualifies you for heaven. But the Bible teaches us to add to our faith and to build upon our faith. And that's where obedience comes in. Jesus spoke to a group of people and he was talking about his ministry and his mission to be the savior and to deliver people from their sins. And and some, some people believed in him. And that's the word that John often uses when he talks about people coming to genuine faith. So I don't doubt that they, they were believers. Some, some people say they weren't true believers, but I, I don't doubt that. But Jesus speaks to the people who believed him and, and begins to want to take them further into his true purpose and mission. What had they believed? They'd begun to understand that Jesus was someone special he says, when you see the Son of Man lifted up, he's talking about his death on the cross, then you will know that I am he. Well, in the original, it says, you will know that I am. And John uses very often the I am sayings of Jesus to point to the fact that Jesus is the I am of the Old Testament. In other words, he is God. They may not have fully understood that, but they were beginning to grasp it and believe it. They were believing now that Jesus was the sent one from God, in other words, the Messiah. And they were beginning to grasp the fact that Jesus was the perfect reflection of the will of God and the heart of God because he always did the things that pleased his Father. But in all this believing, something was missing. And that was Jesus' main point about sin. You see, I believe that these Jewish believers, they were looking for a Messiah that would set them free from the yoke of Rome, from the bondage of Roman occupation, not looking for a savior for their sins. They didn't believe they were sinners. In fact, the saying always was, the Gentile sinners, we are Jews, we're Abraham's descendants, we're not slaves to anyone, fancy saying in the middle of a nation that had been under occupation for many years and prior to that had been in exile and had not been free since the glorious days of David and the, uh, some of the other kings, to say we as a nation never been in bondage to anyone with Roman soldiers going around. There were marks of occupation everywhere. So they, had, they were really missing the point. So Jesus sets the record straight and I believe he needs to set the record straight for us today. We're not living in the first century, we're living in the 21st century and our culture may not be looking for a messianic figure that will emancipate us from occupation although maybe some Brexiteers might be thinking on those lines. No, we, our emancipation is from a life that robs us of the good life. So we want a saviour to bring us into the good life, and we're prepared to go a certain distance to doing what is required, so long as he ensures that we'll have the good life, the happy life, and often that's defined around our own personal wants, needs, and preferences. So we really want to remain lord of our lives, but have Jesus benefits as well. Jesus sets the record straight and he speaks to these people directly and he says if you abide in my word then you are my disciples indeed speaking to us today obedience it begins with his commitment to abide in his word and for his word to abide in me the word is abide remain dwell and I like it, it's a homely picture. The word picture that is built up here is that we are at home in the will of God. It's, it's who we are. It relates to what God has worked on the inside of us, which is total transformation, not moral reparation. It's about obeying him from our hearts in our private lives, not just how we behave in public. And so Jesus says, abide there, live there, hold on to this, do it. And and let's take this message home. We are at home with the will of God. It's our home. It's where we dwell. Jesus said, I always do the things that please my Father. That is our birthright. That is our new nature. And it is also a response to his love. It's not that we have to behave in a certain way, then God will accept us. No, no. He's already accepted us. And because he's accepted us, it is our reasonable, logical delight to obey him because we love him. Can I have a strong amen from a loving (laughs) congregation today? And therefore, it's a willing obedience. So he says, abide in my word, continue in it. And that's something that we must hold forth in our conscience and consciousness as a deliberate, intentional way of our lives. And I'm inviting you today to address whatever area of obedience you may be struggling with. Now, I know from my personal experience, there are whole shafts of the will of God that I don't struggle with. There are many, many things that Jesus asks me to do that I delight in doing. There's no direct command, but of course it's implicit throughout the Bible, to give ourselves to this book. I find it delightful. I have to find different methods because, you know, when you go, go on and on and on as I do uh, and read read um, the Bible, you've got to find l- l- new tricks and devices that it becomes fresh to you, right? But it's a delight. It's a delight. Uh, worship me God says it's a delight especially when Simon takes hold of that microphone and is the first pastor in many years who has a tuneful voice when Lewis and I took a funeral together he couldn't sing, I couldn't sing he played the piano there were no musicians he played and I sang and I want to tell you the atmosphere in that funeral anyway well we did our best but there are other aspects of the will of God that I struggle with. It's almost as with as if God has said, find out what Colin likes doing and then ban it. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that? And that's a bit of satanic thinking. That's the old snake speaking. In fact, God invites us Not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And he says, prove this. Prove, prove to yourself and to others that my will is good, perfect, and acceptable. The very thing that Adam and Eve were reaching for in the garden through sin, and that's the story of sin, that's the anatomy of sin. It promises us everything, delivers nothing but bondage. And when we pursue God and his righteousness, we find it pleasing. And it's the most pleasing thing to please the one you love. In fact, when you are pleasing the one you love, you can get confused because you are also pleasing yourself. You get the delight in all of that. So, no, no, no. Uh, when when we tackle any area of disobedience, he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. First of all, this is a truth of design. God made us and he is the maker and has given us the maker's manual and uh, we need to learn to read the manual. Now, my wife is better at reading manuals than I am, because I am a man, and I don't need instruction. I will get in and try every knob rather than looking at the car manual and see, "Oh, here is the starting motor." But we must get over that. And, and fact, find... these are love letters. By the way, it's not just a manual for life and living. Why we don't read computer manuals, um, software manuals, uh, motor car manuals is because they are boring, yes? But we don't just come to this book because it is a manual. No, these are words of life. And they instruct us in the word, the will, and the ways of God, which are delightful. Amen and amen and amen. I'm even, I'm even convincing myself here today. So let, let, let's think about design. Let's think about a locomotive. All right. A big, big engine. And, and, and it's designed to function for a certain purpose in a certain way. It runs on rails. Now, I ask you, two images. Which one is the image of freedom? A derailed train hurtling across the field out of control or a train running smoothly on the tracks and arriving tout à l'heure à la gare on time in the station? Which is the picture of freedom? Why? It is the mechanism that is operating, the machine that is operating according to its design. Now take the mechanistic element out of that and think of the human personality. We are beautifully and gloriously designed. Take one look at any form of biology and you will see there's a mastermind of creativity and functionality, and that is at the physical level, at the mental, emotional, psychological and spiritual levels, the same truth applies. That's why the psalmist says, Psalm 119 verse 32, NIV version says, I run in the path of your commands. Ha! Let's pause there. Here's a picture of some, someone who is so delighted with the will of God that they're not lagging behind, they're running. When my father used to say, follow me, we're going to clean up the garden, my footsteps did not match his enthusiastic ones. But when he said, let's go fishing, the danger was not this that I should run, but I should run ahead. But when you delight in the law of the Lord, you delight in God, you delight in his will, delight in his purposes, you won't just trudge along the journey. You will run. And the only danger is, you've got to remember, it's a marathon. It is not a 100-meter sprint. It's a marathon. So he says, I will run. That's a picture of freedom, running free. Lovely, glorious picture of freedom. Then he says, I will run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. Freedom here is the freedom, the ability, the presence of mind and the willing consent to choose to do the right thing and serve God. And this service is the only true and pure and perfect freedom. NIV done a good job, but go back to the good old New King James Version, which is based on the King James Version. And it says, I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. That's a promise. Let's dip into that promise. So in other words, the more we obey him, the more we have it in our heart to obey him. And so we, we get on a roll and we say, this is great. Not that we become arrogant. Just when we think we stand, we must take heed, lest we fall. But we discover it's delightful and we want more and more and more of God. And countless stories from your own recollection, when you struggled with a step of obedience, and in the end, God won and the Holy Spirit won. And you say, okay, I surrender. I huh. surrender. And then you discover you have come into a level of liberty and blessing and joy, even if, and very often it is the case, that our obedience costs something. Costs something. Maybe it will cost you financially. Maybe it will cost you relationally. Maybe it will cost you in your pride and in your ego. But... It leads to blessing. But I think also, the enlarging comes. You see, when you choose to go God's way rather than your way, that's Sunday school teaching, isn't it? It's so simple, but I don't depart from it because I find the same issues today at the age of 154. <laughs> no, okay. Some of you laughed. Others you thought, oh, that's, in, that's interesting. <laughs> It's the same struggle. Do you have that struggle? Be honest. Do you have that struggle? Because it's the flesh that wants to please me, please me, please me. But when we say yes to God and no to our personal preference or our inclination or our desire, we find saying yes brings greater liberty, saying no increases the bondage in our lives these are the points that jesus is wanting to talk about the self-destructive consequences of denying reality jesus says you shall know the truth the word truth my 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 we've got a lot of work to do with that truth the idea of truth i mean i'm speaking to jonathan gwilt our finance director and as well as being in finance he is Uh, training himself and getting ready to head up the um, giant of thought and philosophy, particularly in the area of Christian apologetics. And he said, you know, we are living in a post-truth society. Post-truth. What does that mean? Well, it's in the dictionary now. Post-truth actually implies not only... is is truth just kind of relative, but truth has lost all its meaning, and we don't even bother with the word. We've moved away from truth altogether. Is there any wonder why we're living in the society in which we live? You you can't walk into the bank, and the bank manager says, you are 55 pounds overdrawn. Let's be lenient. 55 pounds overdrawn. And you say, well, that's post-truth. I don't accept that, don't talk to you about truth or, or you, st- you stand up in court and saying, I declare, I, de- I, I swear to speak the whole post-truth, nothing but the post-truth and what? What is that? You know, in certain domains, Common sense prevails, but in the area of moral decisions, in the area of opinions concerning great issues, oh, it's all up to you and there's no such thing as truth. In fact, don't even talk about it. We're living in post-truth. One understanding of truth is absolute objective standard. Another understanding of it is absolute objective reality. Let's go with that. Okay, reality. That's how things are. And that reality is God's reality. Don't talk about your reality. How about God's reality? God's reality is the reality. And if you separate yourself from God's reality and live in your own reality, which actually is unreality, you are on a hiding to nothing. You have chosen the path that will ultimately lead to destruction. For when reality fully manifests itself... There is nowhere else to stand. That there is the Christian understanding of hell, eternal suffering, and judgment. Don't don't go there. Don't go there. It's not just, oh, it's inconvenient to be a sinner. You have a few bondages and a few vices. No, it leads to death, even if it is a way that seems right to us. And with truth, there are boundaries. So let, let's, let's do a little experiment. Are you ready? Okay. Two plus two equals? Four. Oh, that's very narrow. Why can't it be five? Let's say five. Why can't it be three and a half? You are very narrow and intolerant, bigoted people. Telling them there's only one right answer. Two plus two equals four. But, but you understand, mathematically, that is a kind of a boundary. Right, okay, so in every other area, truth is related to boundaries, and freedom is related to boundaries. Give you a quick example. We've already prayed this morning, 41 people have lost their lives through knife crime. So much so, I'm not trying to rehearse all the bad news this week, and you probably want to not think about it, but, but think at least about this, the tragic stories of people minding their own business in the park and losing their life through violent attack, knife crime. Think about the young people who falsely believe that they need to carry a, li- a knife to protect their life. Uh, and police are trying to say, no, no, don't do that. Social workers are trying to say, don't do that. Uh, the best way to defend yourself is run uh, and, and, and so forth. But then the parents saying, we can't let our kids out in the park. Not, I'm not even talking about five-year-olds, we're talking about teenagers. And so in a society where everybody is doing right in their own eyes, it is the most oppressive, restrictive, and freedomless society. So a society that is free is a society that works according to and respects the boundaries of right and wrong, respecting other people's freedom, and also their rights, and of course, most importantly, their responsibilities. So when Jesus says, you'll know the truth, the truth shall set you free. He is saying, this is the path of freedom, and I, I invite you to be part. You're gonna be on the right side of reality. There's great blessing in obedience, but it's not about feeling good. The most difficult decisions that I've ever had to make when I'm confronted with a right way and a wrong way. Most difficult decisions at times have been going the costly way. And I got to tell you, if you don't know already, I don't know where you've been. If you don't know this, sometimes and indeed often, going God's way doesn't feel good at the time, at the time. Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Yeah? But at that moment, it's like going to the cross. It's like going through Gethsemane, isn't it, at times? uh, Be honest, God knows how we struggle, and that's why he gives us these wonderful encouragements to lead us out of bondage into his freedom, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom. So Jesus is encouraging them and us to live the life of freedom by confronting our own sin. Are you willing to go there today? I'm going to take you there. I'd rather have you follow willingly. How am I going to do this? Search me, O God, and see if there's some wicked way in me. That's a prayer. It's not muckraking in the negative fleshly life and saying, oh, you know, navel-gazing and looking at all the rubbish within. Best way to confront sin is to turn from it by, by focusing on Jesus. But there are specific things, specific instructions. So, I thought about taking you through the evils of the seven deadly sins. But I thought it'd be too long. You might be dead by the time I'm finished. So I'm just going to pick the three big ones. Money, sex, and power. That's uh, an analysis that is certainly not my own, and it's, it's quite common, but briefly. But in the brevity of these moments, and the intentionality on my part of not laboring the point and haranguing the congregation. Ha! Ah, there's sin in your life. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that i just did that to show you that i'm not going to do that but what i want to do is to ask you to be very honest and open and let the holy spirit do the rest money keep yourselves and your lives free from the love of money the love of money is the root cause of all evil very strong statement jesus said to a rich young man sell your possessions Give to the poor and come and follow me. Oh, yeah, well, that was an exception. Okay, I get, I get that. Why was it an, an exception if it is indeed an exception? Well, because money was this man's idol. And that's a strong enough point for us all to say, ouch. We live in a society that worships money and we believe money is the answer to everything, if not most things. We know that money cannot buy the things which are of real value. It cannot buy you love, cannot buy you peace. It might buy you Prozac, but doesn't buy you peace. And Jesus did say, do not store up treasures in heaven, sorry, treasures on earth, but have treasures in heaven. You know, uh, don't worry, we've taken the offering, so we're not going to relieve you of your financial burdens today anymore. And he, he makes this point: Mammon, which is essentially making the God making God out of money, or making money your God, says, "You can't serve two masters." And I, I think that this is a far greater problem than we admit. We're brought up particularly in the prosperous Western world, and I know there is extreme poverty in our own nation, I know that, but we, we have it so easy, relatively. Amen? And um, it's so easy for us to put our trust in our financial strength. And some are probably saying, okay, let me try, give me some financial strength and let me see if I put my trust in it. But even if you don't have it, you can still be worshipping it. Love not the world or the things of, your wo- of the world. Money. I believe we should work hard to earn money. We should live simply and give away as much as we can in that way we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Can I have an amen? Amen. You know I'm right, and what I'm saying is true. But the harder thing is to actually allow God to speak to you about these things. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. The most liberating thing is to give no anxious thought for tomorrow, but to seek first the kingdom, his righteousness. Amen? Amen. All right, sex. So let's talk about sensuality and spirituality. Um, I'm not saying that sex or sexuality is unspiritual. In fact, it is highly spiritual if it is surrendered to God. And I'm, I'm not in any way going uh, on that one. But, but when we talk about sexual immorality, we talk about all the impurity that is so readily available. I, I trouble over young children who have if they're not supervised direct access to some of the most horrendous borderline and indeed demonic uh, images it's terrible but I'm not even going to talk about that today I'm going to talk about a lie one lie and the lie is that relational sexual satisfaction meets the deepest longing in your life for intimacy. That's a lie. At the very best, it only points to something greater. And the love that we're called to love one another and the world is agape love. R.T. Kendall has been speaking about that. And he says, this is best defined as non-sexual love, meaning that it's something far more important and Far less sensually satisfying, but far more satisfying when it comes to filling that fundamental need in our lives for relationship, relational satisfaction and fullness. The Bible says NIV: let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Let it not even be named amongst you. That's a that's a very high standard. But if you are putting your trust in the higher standard, which is serving God and surrendering your sexuality, if, you're an indiv- if, you, are, if you are single, then that is God's call upon your life which will empower you to live a life of purity and celibacy. If you're married, it is about fidelity within marriage. And, and you say, well, uh, I'm okay there, Well, are you? Jesus said, if you look lustfully, then you are committing that sexual sin in your heart. And so it's about guarding your heart, guarding your, your mind, and it's about putting your focus on the spiritual fullness that there is in Christ, in part now, but in completion in the future life with him. And everything that is physical and pure and beautiful as it's within God's parameters, as he calls us to live a life that glorifies him, all of those physical, pleasurable, sensual, satisfying in, 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 in physical sense as well as the other senses, that glorifies him if it's truly serving him. And we stick to his rules. His, not guidelines or suggestions, but his rules, if we stay on the tracks. You got me? I know we no shame in calling it a rule. And it is. It's God's rule. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. I I kind of want to ask the question. So he's speaking to young people. Is he? So old people, older people don't have to listen. No. Are youthful. I find that at the age of 65, coming up to 67, that my youthful lusts are still with me. Yeah? Those desires. But he says, don't do that, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace on your own in the room with nobody helping you? No. Along with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. There goes your cell meeting. That's what it's about. Amen? We're in this together. Amen and amen. Moving on now to the final issue. Power. What is this about? It's about ego. Trying to you, massage your ego by forcing other people to conform with your thoughts, your will. And, and it's, it's forceful. It can be by domination. It can be by manipulation. Um, doing it because you can that is a very scary thought when, when you watch anybody with power, whether it's a civil servant. I, I went to a, to a um, park, a local park, years ago. And there was a man with a cap standing at the entrance. And I wanted some information. And I was, was not alone. And he said, go to the other counter. So I went to the other counter, (laughs) this is true, he went from one place to the other place, put another hat on says, now, I can ask you, I thought to myself, I mean, Esther Ransom would say that's a Jobsworth (laughs) award. I thought to myself, what is that? It was (laughs) amusing and comical, but it was just a little abuse of power. He had the opportunity to make us line up somewhere else because we were standing and technically at the wrong part of the counter. Mahashalhal hashbaz, that's one of Isaiah's children, and you can look it up for yourself. God help us. But it's the same in us. You know, when you have an opportunity, you have a little bit of power, and you feel good, you can wield that little bit of power. Uh, oh, God help us, there is a power broker in every single one of us, be it pride, be it arrogance, but most of all, it's just plain old ego. Oh, ya,,,, ya. Yi, 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 crucify Hugo, ego. <laughs> Amen. I want, to, I want to emphasize this point, it's a tragic, dramatic story, and it is to, to, to do with the activity of a psychopath. But I I wanted to draw the similarity. I'm not suggesting that our little power struggles are of the same category, or they're in the same category, but not of the same degree. But I heard a story, and I did did a little bit of research, where where a psychopath killed four young men. Um, And he found these men on an LBGTQ, social media dating site. And, and the fact that people from that community were victims only serves to add to the pathos and tragedy of this story. Anyway, however he did it, he enticed these four young men in succession and killed them, cruelly and brutally. When he's brought to justice, his sentence was about to be passed, the judge asked him, why did you do this? And his reply was, because I could. Now understand that, and I I understand it. This is psychopath. And psychopaths don't have that moral compass, okay? So you might think, I'm very cruel to suggest that we are in any way similar. But bear with me, because I think every time we do something which is negative or hurtful or self-assertive at the expense of other people to promote our own ego, we have the power and we're doing it because we can. Do you get me? Please don't be offended because I'm not calling us a bunch of psychopaths. But I, I just want you to see that, that, that we have to take care of the little things and to f- see that tendency in us, which is in human nature. Maybe, maybe it's not pronounced in you and nothing fits everybody, but I do think it's vitally important, whether it's bullying, sex abuse, or anything that forces our selfish will on others. So I believe God is inviting us today to step into a whole new dimension in our discipleship, to say, I want to be a radical disciple. I want to follow a path of radical obedience, thoroughgoing. It's a process. I'm not going to achieve this overnight, but there is this purposeful, intentional desire and aspiration to move further and further in the path." of obedience and to follow Jesus Christ as the absolute Lord of my life alongside recognizing he is the absolute lover of my life. This is the only path to true empowerment and freedom and it's the only way you find your true value because your accountability is what makes you count.